2: Back on the road fast with location telematics, and the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with five G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com/slash-now.
3: Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health.
0: The day of their deaths, January 2nd, 1981, Verna and Doug's bodies were flown by helicopter back to the mainland. The next day, they were autopsied by the acting medical examiner of Ventura County, Dr. Craig Duncan. Hi, Dr. Duncan. Dana, good year. Nice to meet you. I met Dr. Duncan recently at his home in Ventura, which is full of California oil paintings and human skulls. He's a psychiatrist now and wears a big opal ring, but back in 1981, he was a forensic pathologist.
4: Graduated from medical school in 1969. Then I went to Baltimore to complete my training under Russell Fisher, um, who was really the, the grandfather of forensic pathology or the, the, a major figure.
0: Um, and I spent he saw the case of Verna and Doug as. Uncomplicated.
4: It's a standard autopsy of a standard drowning case and um, handled in that fashion with uh, fairly fresh bodies and obvious drowning results. There was clearly evidence of water drowning, um, lungs being full of water.
0: I had the autopsy reports with me, and we went through them together. It didn't take long.
4: Very little on, on Douglas's uh, body in terms of external markings.
0: Let me see if I have, I have Verna over here. So this is Verna.
4: See, no trauma. Mm-hmm. Very little evidence of uh, any trauma at all on Verna's body. Mm-hmm. Same with Douglas. Other than... What I would anticipate in a struggle to prevent one from drowning.
0: Not a struggle with another human. No,
4: just a, a, a struggle to survive.
0: Yeah. Other than the injury of drowning, there were no injuries. No indication that Verna or Doug had been attacked.
4: And I contend that there was no evidence of homicide in the initial autopsies as evidenced by no assault wounds, clubbing on the head with an oar, etc., and no defense wounds, bruises, fractures on the arms, which would be just human nature to do in the event of a, an attack.
0: It was simple, he said. No trauma, no assault of wounds, no homicide. Dr. Duncan declared Verna and Doug's deaths accidental. That determination freed Fred, as next of kin, to proceed with his funerary plans. They drowned on Friday. The autopsies happened on Saturday. On Monday, he'd have a memorial for Verna and Doug at the Malibu Methodist Church, followed by a reception at the house on Sea Level Drive. Meanwhile, he arranged to have the bodies moved to a mortuary in Los Angeles and scheduled them to be cremated on Wednesday, January 7th. Then, Their ashes would be scattered at sea. And Fred would begin to put back the pieces of his life as the single father of three young girls. Or, that's what he assumed. I'm Dana Goodyear, and this is Lost Hills. Episode 2, Quiet No Longer. Fred slept alone in his and Verna's bed. In the morning, he'd have the awful task of telling Verna's daughter, Kim, and his daughters, Heidi and Kirsten, that Verna and Doug would not be coming home. They remember it, how he sat them down and started methodically going through it.
5: Yeah, yes. he told us. <laughs> he would And it was hard because it's like hearing a story that you do not want to know the ending to. And he didn't just start off. He started off telling us that they were out on the boat and the dog had jumped into the water. But it's, you know, we're just waiting. He didn't just come out and say
0: it. And then, you know, he told us. It was shocking. That's Heidi. We met up over the summer at Heidi's house in Colorado. Kirsten was there too, and so was Kim. Fred, they said, had gone through the story in order. The dog, the birds, the dory overturning, the attempts at CPR. Here's Kim.
5: But he did start from the beginning of what had happened, and, and walked us through each step, and then told us
0: that they were gone. <laughs> The three sisters are incredibly close. Add to that, they all look a lot alike. Even though Kim, Verna's daughter from her first marriage, is not blood-related to Heidi and Kirsten, the similarities are uncanny. Same straight dark hair, same long oval faces, same vivid dark eyes.
5: Oh, people have asked if we're triplets. I mean, Heidi and I get twins all the
0: time, and then when the three of us are together, they ask if we're triplets. Kim says this was going on even back when Vernon and Doug were alive.
5: And then there were times when my mom would take us um, out, and she might have, like, all four of us. And somehow it would come up that we were a blended family, you know, in the very beginning. It was a guessing and then, game guessing of who, who was— Who, was who was were who? the two biological siblings? And I think a lot of times it was sometimes—was it you and Doug? Doug and I would get matched they would all get the matched. time.
0: It's strange, but the sisters remember that time right after Verna and Doug died as weirdly sweet. The three girls and Fred, at home, eating food dropped off by the neighbor ladies, figuring out how to cope.
5: I have a lot of good memories of the three of us and Dad, and the jokes about all the freaking casseroles. He would just pull something out because all the women were bringing over casseroles. So we're like, well, this is our dinner tonight.
0: He rearranged their rooms so the girls could all sleep together.
5: Kim and I had a bedroom downstairs, and Kirsten and Doug upstairs. And then after the accident, he built us a triple bunk bed. So we were right off the kitchen, right next to his room. And I remember just being in there one time, and he was in the kitchen doing the dishes, like listening to Devo and just like (laughs) singing along. It was like another little lifetime of happiness. Because I felt like we all got it together and we were like, you know, a family again.
0: The little lifetime wouldn't, couldn't last. And I still don't remember the timeline of
5: when we didn't know who they were men coming to talk to my dad periodically. And and we didn't know what
0: that was about. The men coming to see Fred were detectives from the Santa Barbara County Sheriff's Department. They specialized in homicides.
6: With BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com lost today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. hel dot lost.
1: Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Listen to the unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JPMorgan Chase Bank N.A. Member FDIC. Copyright 2024, JPMorgan Chase and Company.
2: Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com/unconventional awards that's T-mobile.com/unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat.
0: Fred Raylor is a water man. Before prison, the water was his life, which is kind of surprising given where he grew up, in Centerville, Indiana.
7: You know, that's funny. Um, I was always interested in, in water.
0: As a kid, he became obsessed with the new sport of scuba diving.
7: My parents put a pool in which was sort of rare back in Indiana in the days, it was uh, very helpful. And I actually bought a scuba tank and a, and a regulator uh, after I read some of Jock Cousteau's stuff and watched him on television. So I taught myself to, to swim on run and clean the pool without killing myself. And uh, so that's basically how I really got fascinated with it.
0: Later, during college, he taught swimming.
7: When I was at Purdue, uh, one of my electives was water safety instructors. So they actually taught us uh, the Red Cross methods for teaching swimming. And when I came back, I actually did swimming lessons in our pool for uh, uh, a lot of people. And then when I left, uh, I left my Red Cross hat and instruction books and my mother started teaching swimming. And she taught swimming for several years.
0: After college, he got his job at Point Magoo, working as an engineer for the Navy. And the Navy sent him to its scuba school in San Diego.
7: The reason for diving was most of our trouble was with stuff underwater. It either leaked or it wasn't connected right or, you know, something was going wrong. So they sent me basically to scuba school. And then that allowed me to work with Navy divers to help install things and also take pictures of them and, you know, just see what was going on.
8: The Navy
0: started sending him to the Pacific Missile Range Facility on Kauai.
7: They actually had an underwater range, which is like a series of microphones spread out underwater, and they can track uh, surface ships and submarines and things. They're found-
0: Fred oriented his whole life around the water. For a while, he even lived on a houseboat called Home in the Channel Islands Marina in Oxnard. He had a little side business there, cleaning the bottoms of sailboats for race days. That's where he met one of the winningest skippers in the harbor, Dick Felthoen.
7: So we did crazy things for sport. We had a friend who was a Navy pilot uh, on helicopters, and we used to go to San Nicolas Island, which was 60 miles offshore, and... I could do some jobs out there because we had some uh, weather stuff out there. So I'd go out there on the weekend and he would actually drop us out of the helicopter in really nice spots where we could get uh, lobster and, and things like that.
0: The Channel Islands were Fred's playground. Before they became the place, his wife and stepson died. One of the things the detectives from Santa Barbara were struggling to figure out was how someone with Fred's water experience had failed to save a child in a life preserver. They first showed up at Sea Level Drive five days after Verna and Doug died. It was 11 a.m. on Wednesday, January 7th, the day Fred had scheduled Verna and Doug's cremations. Fred greeted them cordially.
9: Can I get both of your names before I forget? Yeah.
0: Their names were Claude Tuller and Fred Ray. Ray did most of the talking. He gave the impression that the last place he wanted to be was in Malibu, bothering a grieving husband. He was reassuring, if disingenuous. He failed to mention that he had a tape recorder running.
10: Let, let me explain this to you. Can I call you Fred? Sure. Okay, i Fred also.
0: Santa Cruz Island, Ray said, was part of Santa Barbara County, so the deaths were in their jurisdiction.
10: Our problem is this, is that we were we received a phone call because we're supposed to investigate it because it was in Santa Barbara County.
0: He was going to need Fred's help, clearing up a few murky details.
10: To be honest with you, Fred, we really don't know what much about what's going on. We have no idea of... of uh, well, I can't say we had no idea. We do have an idea of what happened out at the island, but everything is really sketchy. So uh, we're kind of like thrown into it after the fact. We don't know if, if, uh, how it was ruled, if it's accidental or if it's intentional or whatever. We don't know that. So far as we know, it, it Certainly looks like it. It was accidental, and uh, so we we are only looking into it to to ascertain what the circumstances were and what happened. If you understand. What.
0: Yes. Detective Ray said, "It certainly looks like it was accidental. That's because there was barely any physical evidence, just Fred's story, and a whole lot of head scratchers."
10: The only thing that I I would suggest that maybe we do is uh, uh, you know remind you that that if if there's anything wrong with this at all that you know you have certain rights too. Uh, so I don't know if it's necessary at that point, but uh, certainly I would want to make you aware of every. Every right that you have, plus I'm sure there's going to be...
0: He mentioned that there might be some civil problems associated with the drownings.
10: Mm-hmm. But I'm sure that there's going to be a lot of legal things that you're going to have to, you know, mm-hmm. consult with. Don't you think, Paul? More
0: than
9: likely. Yeah.
10: So,
0: he read Fred his Miranda rights.
10: I should let, remind you that you do have the right, right to remain silent. And anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law.
0: Yeah, Amazingly, Fred went ahead with the interview, without his lawyer.
10: Again, that's, you know, just for your awareness. You know, I, I know, Fred, it's going to really, really be difficult to, to talk about this. I remarked when I was, I first heard about it on the, on the news, It know, about a lot of tragedy.
0: Fred seemed eager to please or form a rapport with the detectives.
9: Well, I've, you know, we've had a, a service for both of them uh, Monday, and we had friends over afterwards. And a lot of my friends are really into sailing and uh, the ocean and all those things. And uh, we remarked over and over that how many times it, uh, have you dumped a boat? Everybody just got wet, a little angry, and and got back in, and everything was fine. Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: He said Doug, whom he referred to as his son, was very comfortable in the water.
9: That's part of the things that I find, you know, really as perverse as it is, is that uh, my son was a good swimmer. Uh, He had just mastered standing up on a boogie board. He was was a small boy, Mm -hmm. Uh, but very agile, and he was a good swimmer. Mm-hmm.
0: He was practically babbling, answering questions the detectives hadn't even asked.
9: But I think part of the thing that got him was the fact that he was wearing a life jacket.
10: That
9: he was trapped underneath the boat.
10: Or was he trapped under the boat?
9: Well, and again, that's something that I can only surmise, because uh, initially I was trapped under the boat. They mm-hmm. had a camera on, and uh, the camera strap got hooked in the uh, the uh, In fact, I drew a picture of that. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the boat, but it was a 16-foot shock
10: rolling dory. Yeah, I saw the boat yesterday. Claude I did.
0: Uh, Next, Ray wanted to know about any objects that were in the boat with them, clues that could corroborate the locations in his story or work to contradict them.
10: Did you have anything in the boat other than... Then the three of you, I mean, any uh, were you carrying sandwiches or colts or anything? Like no, that? no, we had
0: the answer was no. But Fred took the question as an invitation to back all the way up to the purchase of his sailboat months earlier.
9: Well, let me let me go back. I guess the easiest thing is to really start in the beginning. In uh, about uh, Sept- September, September. August or September of last year, we really had a desire to get a boat. And we thought we would. We were to a point where we could really take off and do some sailing as a thing. Yeah. It sounded
0: like he wanted the detectives to be happy for him.
9: We just felt so fortunate. I mean, uh, so it was really just uh, like a real dream come true that we could get the boat. And then we spent uh, just about every weekend, sailing her, uh, initially just day sailing her with friends, Mm -hmm. then finally going out to the islands, and uh, we made a number of trips out there.
0: Then he started talking about Lady, the beagle.
9: We had just gotten a dog about uh, maybe a month. I'd have to look at the records, but maybe a month or two months ago. The whole family wanted a dog, and I was sort of against the dog. One, because we had a boat, and, and we had four children, and I felt they could pet each other. if They really needed it. We didn't need something else to take care of. But they won, and we got a little beagle puppy. Uh, and we had taken her in the car, and we would taken her up and spent the night on the boat, but we never had her out. Mm-hmm. So one of the reasons for the trip was, one, my parents were here from Indiana. My, I, I seem like I'm rambling. Uh, so we were all aboard, and we got uh, underway in the morning. My mother actually sailed the boat all the way over, and then uh, we put the sails down, and then my wife uh, takes the boat, handles the helm at that point, and we put down a bow anchor and a stern anchor. Uh, we had lunch. The him.
0: detectives let him talk and talk until he'd pretty much talked himself out.
9: I I'm going to pick some tea. Can I get you some instant coffee? I've got to have oh, yeah. juice. Or...
0: Fred needed a break.
10: A little coffee wouldn't hurt. Thank you.
0: The hidden tape recorder capturing the interrogation wasn't the only secret Ray and Tuller were keeping from Fred. Doug and Verna had not, in fact, been cremated that day. Unbeknownst to Fred, their bodies were sitting in cold storage at the mortuary, waiting for a deputy from Santa Barbara to pick them up on a judge's search warrant. That deputy would bring the bodies back to Santa Barbara, where they'd each undergo a second secret autopsy, which would tell a very different story about what happened at Bird Rock.
1: J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company.
2: Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization. Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before. A platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies. The Cellular Vehicle to Everything Network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The City of Bellevue earned first place in the Community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com/unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com/unconventional awards. See you there.
0: Fred returned with the coffee. Detective Ray took charge of the conversation.
10: Okay. Basically, you're not sure what time it was when you went out in the the dinghy from your boat.
9: No. The best, you know, it was after lunch. Um, you know, it's probably and again, it's probably between one and one
10: thirty somewhere around in there. Okay. <clears throat> and then you you rolled out by the rocks. From the point where you had the accident, uh, you could still see your boat where it was anchored? Yes. How far off of that rock would you say you were? Probably 20 to 30 feet. When the accident happened? Mm-hmm.
0: Fred had told the detectives that the purpose of being in the open ocean in the Dory was to take a picture. Doug and Lady, with bird rock and perseverance.
10: How are you going to take the picture now? You wanted the picture?
9: Yeah, where where I was going to be sitting. I was sitting on the floor on the boat. Uh And my son was going to be holding the dog. And the picture would have been looking from this point over his shoulder. You would have seen the rocks and the birds. He would have been in the foreground, the rocks and the birds. And then Perseverance would have been in the background.
10: Oh, I see.
0: But that didn't really square.
10: Was that kind of close to take a, a picture of the rock? No, I mean just because of the size of the rock, would that, isn't that kind of close to get enough photograph? I don't really understand. I guess your question. In other words, if you're going to take a picture of, of, say, he he's your son, mm-hmm. and I am you mm-hmm. sitting here with the camera, mm-hmm. and you want the bolt in the background, mm-hmm. and the rock to the side, mm-hmm. well, to see that it's a rock. Uh, if you're so close to it, it's so all you can see is just a big wall.
9: We have to, I guess, really look through the camera and see what the field of view is in the camera because it's not a wide angle, it's a, it's a narrower type of mm-hmm. thing. I was basically listening to her as to where she wanted the boat. We had rowed out and we had stopped. And Vernus said, okay, this, ho- this should work. I think we're awards. This, sh- this ought to work here. So I brought the oars in the boat. And I slipped off the seat down into the floor. So her back would have been towards us here. And she was sitting on a cushion, and she had another cushion up in this V. Excuse me a second. Hello.
0: Fred, the newly single dad, was juggling. Yeah.
9: Hi. Uh no, she went with
10: uh, grandma. Well, I don't know.
9: They went into town. Okay. Uh, so she would have been sitting with her back to us.
0: Ray face. wanted to know about Doug's condition after the Dory flipped.
10: Was his eyes open or closed? His eyes were open. Was he breathing? Could you tell?
9: No, he wasn't breathing. Just vomiting. You know, he was just running from his mouth. He wasn't. He wasn't shaking. He wasn't retching. You
10: know? mm-hmm. What color was the vomit again?
9: Yellow. It's almost like you could see the corn chips and
10: stuff that he had had for lunch.
0: Detective Ray knew Fred had a lot of ocean experience.
10: living next to the ocean here. You've been around the ocean most of your life. Sounds like Came to California in
9: 1966. My first job was with the Navy at Point Magoo. Basically been near the water ever since.
10: Was this your first sailboat?
9: It was, it was my first sailboat. I had two houseboats before that, and I crewed on uh, a number of sailboats, uh, the biggest— The
0: interview went on for hours, till it was 6 o'clock at night. The detectives were still asking Fred questions, while the kids were popping in and out.
9: I'll be up in a minute, okay?
0: By the time the detectives were done with Fred, the tone had shifted— they were less reassuring and Fred was less chummy.
10: Somehow we, we need to figure out if, if there's a way we could figure out to, to make sure that there was no foul play or anything like that with this.
0: Ray handed the baton to his colleague, Claude Tuller. Well,
4: there's probably a couple of ways uh, if you're willing to a uh,
10: polygraph examination. Sure.
9: Yeah, I think uh, I would probably have to talk to uh, my attorney, uh, and then find out just exactly what you know what really I should be doing before you take the polygraph? I think I really, I need. I really need to talk to him. Oh, before sure. whatever I we do,
10: just uh, you know, Lord knows you're sure going through a lot now. We understand. We we were just hoping because. You know, there's no way to tell one way or another right now. We're just hoping there's some way that we could make it easy on and mm-hmm. shorten everything out. You know, I it. think
4: it's gonna come, almost come down to that anyway. Because uh, I don't know if Berna uh, and, and Doug had
0: insurance. Insurance? So that's what this was all about.
10: Yes. So we'll have to, we'll have to come to some type of resolution there. More likely before they'll settle a claim. What mm-hmm. were they both insured?
9: Yeah, our whole family was insured. As mm-hmm. it
0: happened, there were life insurance policies on both Verna and Doug, fresh ones. They'd been finalized in the weeks before their deaths, and the policies were substantial, with an additional payout in the case of accidental death. The second, secret autopsies would never have happened had it not been for a Malibu woman named Candy Hinman. Candy had been a close friend of Fred's first wife, Jean, and she had
8: serious concerns about Fred. I wasn't at liberty to say anything to anybody because it's such a small town and a small group of people, and I didn't want to make some accusation or say anything. that, um, I, I just didn't want to do that, so I kept quiet about it. And just thought things would all uh, things would you know unravel and everybody figure it out. But when she heard that Verna and Doug had drowned, she was beside herself. That's when I said I am quiet no longer. I don't care if I become persona non grata for all the community. I was not going to keep quiet. Candy started making calls. It was very urgent. They were scheduled to be cremated. And I said, hold, hold it. Hold everything. You've got to do some kind of investigation. I think there was a murder committed. Candy wasn't trying to gossip or sling mud. She was on a crusade. I was determined that day that I was going to make sure that somebody held him accountable, that somebody was going to realize that there's a monster out there. Before they closed the case on
0: Verna and Doug, she told the cops, they needed to find out what happened. To Fred's first wife. Coming up on the next episode of Lost Hills, marriage in Malibu looked a little different in the
6: 70s.
5: But there, there, there was a group— who, like me, had never slept with anybody else before we got married. It was just, you just didn't do it. And so there was a little bit of a freedom for some people to, you know, get uh, intimate with other people. It was open marriage. And it ended in a couple of
0: divorces. That's next in Episode 3, The Shallow End, Part 1. Lost Hills is written and reported by me, Dana Goodyear. It's created by me and Ben Adair and produced by Western Sound and Pushkin Industries. Subscribe to Pushkin Plus and you can hear the whole season ad-free and get early access to the final two episodes. Find Pushkin Plus on the Lost Hills show page in Apple Podcasts or at pushkin.fm.
6: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are,